Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Um, the point of this series, I, I'm a, my curatorial tenure is two years, and the point of my series is really about memory and forgetting and the interplay of the two, particularly as they relate to New York City. Um, obviously, Penny is someone who is sort of working at that nexus constantly and has been since she sort of emerged in New York, and, and she has been everything from a performer, a writer, a historian, an artist, a Warhol superstar, um, an act actor. Uh, she's an amazing person, as all of you know. Um, she has attracted the interest of everyone from poets, like the Poetry Project, where she first performed to semiotext. Uh, it's a really breathtaking career, and one that is so extraordinarily diverse. And it's a kind of career that you don't often see anymore, uh, because it's just it's just hard to do as much as she's done, and I don't I don't really know how you've done it, but. Um, I just wanted to hand over the mic and maybe you can start and talk about sort of your relationship to, to memory. I mean, you've, you've been active in, this, in a project sort of recording the Lower East Side, sort of the, the stories that have existed there, and that's particularly relevant today given that it's World AIDS Day, and we've sort of, it's a day of action as much as remembrance, and sort of, I think that that's something you've really, you've really tied together, action as a kind of remembering. Um, so. Okay, well, hi everybody, thanks for coming out tonight. Yeah, when uh, Andrew asked me to do this, even though I knew it was December 1st, I wasn't thinking about World AIDS Day. Um, even though probably until 10 years ago, December 1 would automatically trigger World AIDS Day. But the truth is that we forget, <clears throat> and things recede, and other things um, become more important or they become, one's life becomes uh, focused on minutia. And so uh, once I realized, like three days ago or something, I went, oh yeah, December 1st, I went, oh my God, that's World AIDS Day. And I remember participating in the first World AIDS Day um, that was organized by quite a few different people. <coughs> Visual AIDS um, organized it, and um, I was going to do something with film, with video, um, with Alan Frame, and um, I can't remember his partner at the time, and then we ended up not doing it, but we were still in the streets on that day, and it was the idea was that it was day without art, that um, it was a combination, visual aids is, excuse me, <coughs> maybe I'll be like Bob Dylan and after my second song, my voice will clear up. <laughs> um, uh, the whole idea behind it, uh, behind visual aids was a coalition of artists and art workers, which um, I don't think had ever happened before. And of course it happened because you know, our world was totally ransacked by AIDS. And so today I was putting up names of my friends who died and it became really horrible because there were people whose names I couldn't remember. 
you know, they were just faces. And I have even lost the people who I could call to say, and what was that person's name? And that's what happens as, you know, time goes by, which people always wanted me to write my memoir, and I was like, oh man, that's something you do when you're 80. Because people started asking me to write my memoir when I was 18. But now I realize, don't wait. <laughs> write small journal entries. Um, so, it's funny because um, my very first performance in 1985 was in this room. And many of the people who were in this room died of AIDS. And um, so it's interesting to be here almost 30 years later because that 1985, I performed um, February 1985 for the Monday Night Series. <clears throat> I don't know why my voice is like this. I don't think it has anything to do with cigarettes. <laughs> it's that dairy. Dairy's the real problem here. So, I don't know, let's see, we were going to talk about memory. Um, it's really interesting because I've long been considered the memory of my generation. And that was said about me in the 70s and the 80s. And it's kind of staggering to realize that your memory does change. You know, I think, um, I know that a lot of my work was about trying to keep people present. Because in the 80s, my work was mainly biographic. So I did real people that people knew, you know. So there was a way of, a means of measuring, you know, how good I was at what I was doing because, as a matter of fact, when I did Margot Howard Howard that first time in 1985, Margot Howard Howard was in the audience, repeating everything I was saying, and turning around and, that's me, she's talking about me. And, um, and we also did a performance here together, Margot and I. Um, Margot, for those of you who don't know who Margot Howard Howard is, uh, Margot Howard Howard was one of those epic creatures that pretty much can't exist again of, in the world. I mean, I don't, I believe there's still interesting people and quirky people and weird people, but the um, existence of certain things that created the possibility for someone like a Margot Howard Howard, who um, was a drag queen, although many people didn't know that she was a drag queen because she looked like an old woman. Best described as having uh, the body of a woman and the head of a fish. And um, she was brilliant, totally brilliant person, um, who had convinced New York society that she was the granddaughter of the Duke of Norfolk. Um, when she was, she was older, than the Duke of Norfolk, but you know, New York society just went along with it and Margot formed the um, uh, Mary Stewart Society. Yes, the Mary Stewart Society and would have teas. We had one at the, um, we had one tea at the Pierre, 
which I'm sure that that staff will never be the same because Margot um, was a big speed freak and she had like, you know, this much lace hanging out of her dress and she, mm, what was she saying? Um, 19 Belgian nuns embroidered this lace, 19, 19. Nine, they were later um, canonized. They were blind, darling, blind, blind, blind. <laughs> However, they were later canonized, which is all those poor bitches live for. <laughs> and um, I don't know what, oh yeah, because I was in here, in here, right in this room, uh, Richard, no, was it Richard Hell? Yeah, Richard Hell was um, the, whole, the curator that year. And Margot and I did a reading where I, I played Margot, and Margot played a number of characters in this book that was just about to come out, which is still available, I Was a White Slave in Harlem, Dame Margot Howard Howard. And um, Margot went berserk, and um, she went berserk in here. <laughs> That's all I can say. However, so moving on about memory. So all art is made from memory, whether it's a memory of something from 30 years ago or whether it's a memory that you've just had. And for that reason, um, it's a, a real flow. I think for a lot of artists, there's a real flow between their memory and their work. Um, in the Lower East Side Biography Project, which I've been doing with my longtime collaborator, Steve Zettner, who's sitting there. We've been doing it since 1999, and it's been broadcasting and cybercasting weekly since 1999. Um, the original impetus to start the Lower East Side Biography Project was to save source material. Um, I, don't, I wasn't really thinking at the time that we were going to make all this programming. The main idea was just, hey, let's get these people before they disappear. And even though we've been pretty valiant at it, we've missed a lot of people. Because people don't die on schedule. They, uh, you know, there are people you think are just so vital and they couldn't possibly die, and you're going to do the oldest people first, and then all these amazing people die. And why are they amazing? They're amazing because scenes, there's not like one scene. There are plates that hover over each other. And there are certain people who are very, very important to history and to memory because they participate in several scenes. So they're kind of bridge people. And um, when we started this project in 1999, academia had very little respect for oral history. Um, if you were uh, interviewing, the idea of interviewing people who were witnesses um, was really looked down on. It, it wasn't seen as, um, it seemed to lack a certain validity. You know, um, in other words, if they were going to interview, you know, Dylan, uh, something about Dylan Thomas, it would have to be, you know, Dylan Thomas or his wife or you know, somebody truly famous who was there at that moment. It couldn't have been the people who were in the milieu. And yet, the people who are in the milieu are the people who observe the most. You know, and it's about observation. And um, 
I mean, I was just having this conversation with my friend Philippe Notre Dame about um, why do I do what I do? Because we're talking about being political uh, as artists. And um, I'm a political person, but I'm not a political artist. And I just explained to Philippe that I think that the reason why my work has taken on this political urgency, and it's been that way since the very beginning, was because I didn't see anybody else doing it. It wasn't because of an inclination that I had. I'm shallow, superficial, and frivolous, or would be, if life would let me. Meaning that I'm somebody who's like just really interested in clothes, and beauty, and fun, and um, living a really loose life. You know, I don't give a fuck about not having a huge career. Um, I would like more recognition for my work. Most artists would like recognition for their work simply because it means access, that people can see it. You know, you, you do have a responsibility to work to have it be seen, but as far as you know, career and that sort of thing, that's always seemed really annoying to me, you know. I'm sure Patti Smith is really enjoying um, the um, fame that she's having right now in the broadest sense of the word because she's been famous for a long time. Um, I don't know if I would do very well with that kind of attention. I don't like people blowing smoke up my ass, it's not my personality type. You know, I always say that there are two kinds of performers in the world, the ones who want to be worshipped and adored, and the ones who just want to be friends with everybody. And my thing comes out of wanting to be friends with everybody because I'm an outsider loner type and have been that my entire life. But when you're a real outsider loner type, you also can't handle people, you know, the kind of people who tend to come around you when they think that you're glamorous. Because it's never the great people. The great people are always hanging back. It's usually the most horrible people who have really strange reasons for why, you know, they want to get close to you. And heaven forbid if you've been on television as I have in Australia, then they just want to touch you because you've been on television. So this brings up a lot of issues about people's relationship to um, their, their own mortality. Like there's a lot of issues of mortality and um, I've made that clear, I think. Um, so in wanting to preserve this world, the world that I came of age in, because I didn't come to New York because I read about it. Like many people and a lot of people in this room, I washed up in New York. There was no reason, I didn't know about Andy Warhol, I didn't you know, have any idea about being an artist, I didn't come to New York to be an artist. I came to New York because it was the next place to go. <laughs> yeah? I was in Boston, too many students had to get out. <laughs> 
you know. And um, for those of us who, who came to New York in the late 60s, um, you know, that was one New York. Then there was another New York that was in the 70s. Um, and that New York, the New York that I came into was very violent. Um, there were all these kids, people like me, who were 15, 16 years old, who, you know, ended up in New York, ended up in the East Village, running away from um, our hometowns, running away from a myopic, claustrophobic culture that rejected us, problems with our families. Um, the big pull of New York was that it was anonymous, you know, and I think a lot of people who came to New York in the 60s, 70s, and 80s came because it was anonymous. And you found people, you found your people, and that happens magically. You don't have to try, it just happens, you know. I think since, since the late, since the mid 80s, um, well, even in the late 70s, there was a certain kind of person who came to New York because they read about it. And that was a kind of middle-class art type, you know, who um, came to New, York, to New York having read The Village Voice, having read the Soho News, and already knew who they thought was important. And they, so they completely missed the underground. And um, I was very influenced and it's not that strange, only the form is strange. I was very influenced when I was 26, I was living in um, central Maine, and um, like super nowhereville, as a matter of fact. Um, I remember going to the Skowhegan Town Library on January 1st, and let me see if I got this straight, January uh, maybe it was the spring of 75, so I was, I was 25 years old, and reading a Time Magazine editorial that was talking about the bankruptcy of New York, and it said, what will happen, what does it mean for somewhere like Skowhegan, Maine, if New York is floundering? And I thought, wow, that means I'm in nowhere. <laughs> and um, that New York of the, of, of the middle 70s I visited, but I didn't live in. And um, I came back in 1981. And that New York was experiencing a really bizarre change downtown because there were people who had kind of made it and people who hadn't made it, or people who had gotten, you know, some, some kind of reward, you know. I mean, I remember people like um, photographer Peter Hujar and um, Jack Smith and Jackie Curtis and a lot of people who, you know, were great entities who were very resentful at what they felt that people had moved in and had taken their ideas and had kind of run with them, you know? And so there was that, and so I was 30. And I, I remember feeling a, a tremendous um, sympathy and empathy for them. And perhaps because I've always been 
more interested in older people than my than people my own age. Um, through their experiences, I mean, that's one of the things I say to younger people. There's not tremendously young people here, but I will say, you know, the current, there's a current trend in society is for young people to be experts, and it's such a pathetic loss for those, those young people because the greatest thing is to be able to be in the shadows and observe. And I always say when I was 24, nobody was interested in my opinion. I had one, <laughs> but I wasn't expected to have an opinion. I wasn't expected to have a point of view, you know, that was honed, you know, that was permanent. And the idea was that you had 20 years to develop, you know, so I could follow, um, the poet Rochelle, um, uh -oh, Rochelle Owens and, um, uh, oh, I can't remember her name right now. Okay, it'll come back. I could, I would, they were in their 40s and I would follow them around. They were not interested in me at all because I was already had a name and I was like, you know, this downtown it girl and I used to wear red eyeshadow and my hair was out here and ripped 30s dresses and I knew that they somehow didn't approve of me. Yet, I wanted to be like them, you know? And even though it seemed scary because I couldn't do anything really, um, I still knew that I had like, you know, like a solid 20 years to get it together. And you know, when you're under 30, time moves a lot differently than it moves between 30 and 60. I'm really excited about that for all the little snot-nosed people who are, who are really snotty to me when they were in their 20s and are now entering their 40s and are floundering. Oh my God, where's all the time going to? So, you know, I'm babbling because you're not asking me questions. <laughs> yeah, ask me some questions. Of course, of course. Uh, I mean, You've, throughout your career, you've been engaged in a lot of like really specific projects around memory, uh, from your biographic work, as you mentioned, to sort of your relationship to Jack Smith, who was a sort of mentor of yours, and you, you really participated in that archive and managing that for quite some time. And also, of course, the Lower East Side Biography Project. At this current moment, I think many of us are seeing around New York lots of smaller and larger institutions that have been designed as archives uh, disappear everything from the Village Voice to just restaurants, which have been the home for so many people. And a lot of that is gentrification, but it's also a lot of indifference, uh, I think, in terms of how neighborhoods have just shifted, so certain places disappear. And I'm wondering if you could speak about how you, how you think about gentrification in relation to your own work, in relation to institutions that you've interacted with, which have subsequently disappeared or changed dramatically. Look, really fundamentally, um, there used to be downtown and uptown, and there were <coughs> profoundly different values at work. And, um, you know, certain, that changed with certain people coming in. I mean, I, I could say that for me, Paper Magazine kind of changed everything when Paper Magazine started, which was around 1986, I think, as they started. They put Madonna on the cover, you know, or, you know, it was like, 
really? Like, really? Um, although they also put Karen Finley on the cover, but there started to be a different kind of person. Um, but I, I suppose, you know, that this is like, there was a time when we could have done something about it, but we couldn't get anybody on board. I mean, I was working for um, housing rights and um, I, I didn't tour for two years. Let's see. 90, later part of 90, no, I don't know, 96, 97, 98, Miss Joni Moosey's here. We were doing housing activism around squats that were being closed down then. And you couldn't get any artists to participate. They just wouldn't, you, you could say to artists, which I did, they're just practicing. They're practicing on these squats and they weren't interested. And then when Tonic had to close, the jazz club had to close, which I don't know when that was, like around 2000 or something, in the 2000s even, all of a sudden people were in a panic. Oh my God, Tonic's gonna close. You know, and by then there was nothing we could do about it. I mean, um, in Longing Lasts Longer, I say gentrification is over. Hypergentrification is over. We have been colonized. It's colonized. Um, it would be unthinkable that something could happen to the Poetry Project. Um, the Poetry Project has been a place of cultural resistance since the 60s. Yet, I can now very easily imagine that the Poetry Project has no home. That the Poetry Project becomes another nomadic institution because I see what happens, you know, just at the readings and stuff. I mean, I don't go to a lot of the readings because I don't like to leave my house, you know. Honestly, if they did a reading, like within a block or so of my house, I'd be there. But, um, you know, I have this kind of agoraphobia thing that happens to me um, where I don't want to go out. Um, yeah. Uh, just on the subject of nomadism, I think that is true that a lot of, you, you see, I think this is even true in part for your Lower East Side biography project, that nomadism is actually kind of a, an asset in many ways. And the web has sort of allowed us to sort of free flow in many ways. We can host uh, information elsewhere and also um, institutionally certain things can become more flexible. This is not to say that I want to see the Poetry Project go away. But I'm interested in what you think about sort of the, the influence of the internet in particular on these institutions. I think that a lot of people your age and your age group say that to me. And it's fucking bullshit, okay? Because we are right now, we have no idea what's happening to the internet as we speak. And I have um, had the, the privilege of talking to people who are deeply embedded and who know what's going on. And, you know, we don't have to worry about them burning the books anymore because they can just pull the plug. We also think that the internet is free. We think the World Wide Web is free. It's not free. It's owned by a very small number of large corporations who at any time, look at how we live now. I think about this every time I go to Google, Google something. What if when you went to Google something, it cost $5.95. Or what if Google was suddenly not even available? 
You know, we have all changed how we operate because of the internet. And I've been online since 1993, so I was like one of the first people who was online, and I, and, and, and I really see it as a tool. I use Facebook, a lot of people hate Facebook, but I'm a criminal, and um, so I'm not really worried about them stealing my stuff or anything else in, in that regard, because I, I mean, that's the least of the injustice that I see in the world. But I think that we are not aware that this ability to gather has a limited shelf life. Just like fish, right? We're the last generation that will eat fish. And we may be the last generation that will gather. So while it's great that we can put the LES bio uh, it cybercasts every week. Try getting people to know that. Do you know what I mean? Because I think all of us who've lived in New York for a long time know that before the internet, information passed around so much quicker than it does now. It does not pass quickly. This is a moronic uh, point of view. It does not. We are limited. People say, oh, but you know, you can find out anything you want on the internet. Hmm, I've noticed that the algorithms have become more and more and more controlling. The difference between what you could search for in 1995 or seven, and what you can search for now, how it's these, it seems to be these kind of um, concentric circles you know, instead of going out into more information, you're getting less and less information. Um, I, I find this really super disturbing. You know, I find, um, I mean, you know, I'm not one to talk because I don't come to a lot of events at the Poetry Project, but I have friends like Angel Davis who comes to lots and lots and lots of poetry readings. There are amazing people reading here all the time, and they have really small um, houses. Yeah, yeah, but I live five blocks away. No, I know, I know. But that's not why there are small houses. You know, I think that, you know, people think that they can just put something out, you know, like I tweet and I, um, and I Facebook all the time, you know. Um, but it doesn't mean that you're getting the same, um, what you could have done just by putting a $22 one-liner on the back of the Village Voice in 1986, where everyone in New York, you know? Okay, say there's 10 million people. 10 million people didn't see it. But probably a solid 4 million people saw it because everyone knew to look on the back of the Village Voice, right? So in, in terms of, you know, you know, I've started, my work has always been about gentrification because when I came back to New York in 1981, I saw how much New York had changed. And when I tried to talk about it to people, people were really annoyed with me, you know? Who, people who were kind of my own age and I had, because I was at that time in like 81, I was going kind of between two worlds. 
this kind of more established, older, underground scene and the new people who had moved in. So people who were running Performance Space 122 and um, you know all the different arts venues and I was spending a lot of time here. And so there were, I was like kind of in two worlds. And I saw what had changed then. And as a matter of fact, I brought it up. I, I ran into a painter named Edwin Ruda who was like the last of the expressionist, abstract expressionist painters merging on um, minimalism. He was a great, great, great artist. And he was 20 years older than me. So he was probably in his early 50s when I was 31. And I ran into him at, a, uh, at Bruno's, which some of you may remember was on LaGuardia Place right off Houston. And it was um, a painter's um, cafe filled with painters. And um, I didn't even know, this is how cool it used to be. I didn't even know that it was a painter's cafe. It just looked like a kind of ordinary bakery. And for some reason, I went in there one day. I just felt pulled in. And there I found Edwin Ruda. And I said to him, sort of tentatively, this is 1981, and I said, um, um, What's wrong with New York now? And he looked at me and he said, haven't you ever read Hannah Arendt? <laughs> and I didn't even know who Hannah Arendt was. And he said, Hannah Arendt said in 1966 that we were in the last stage of consumerism in the arts, that art would no longer save the world. Well, it's 1981, what do you think? <laughs> and, you know, I think I've always taken these these small opportunities that people would present to me would open another door, open another door. That, you know, I've always expected to meet amazing people from all walks of life who are gonna turn me on to something that I need to know. And I think that people are more separate than ever. Um, certainly, you know, you live pretty much in a mono-generational world and a lot of older people live in a mono-generational world and don't even want to because there just isn't much mixing between the age groups. And there is a, an element, though, um, if you think you're going to win something, if you think there's a reward to be gotten and you're weighing between, you know, aligning with something that's under attack, but maybe I'm gonna get something out of this. And I think that is a lot of what's going on because certainly it is very um, trendy to be an activist or say you're an activist. Um, it's very trendy to be uh, critical of free market capitalism and yet somehow it's harder and harder for us to act in coalition with each other. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing is a lot of people in multiple generations really do struggle to sort of bridge. And I think one thing you've, you've done so well is that you have found ways to bridge between multiple generations, multiple scenes, multiple, you know, even parts of the country and the world. Um, but I think that for a lot of people, both young and old, whatever those categories mean, it's, it's actually a struggle to actually find the ways to do that. 
And I wonder if you have any, I mean, this is kind of a large question that I hate to put on you, but I mean, do you have any kind of recommendations? Do you think it's a matter of just the way people are educated or do you think it's a matter of a kind of lack of imagination? But how, how do people learn to bridge those gaps? Well, I think a large part of it is brainwashing. Like there's been a tremendous brainwashing of young people to make them believe that they're cool, cooler than people who are older, who have more experience. The way that theory is now um, actually something that, that, oh, I can't remember the word I'm trying to use, um, that you can use that's equal with experience. Um, and of course, I mean, I guess, you know, for me, it's really hard because I'm an incredibly immature person, okay? Like, I am, I've been young for a really long time. I was like a super young person in my 20s. Um, I once tried to tell Bobby Beers, the great Bobby Beers, um, that I was naive, and he said, you were never naive. And I said, well, then I guess I was innocent. So I think I always had a, a certain kind of wild innocence that I guarded inside myself. You know, that was the result of a lot of trauma, which is the only reason I have it. So, <laughs> you know, I don't really encourage people to be like so severely traumatized that they maintain this kind of pristine purity at their core. But that's what happened to me. And, um, If you have an entire, see that's the thing that's so hard because I don't experience myself as an age. Gertrude Stein said we're, we, we all, we're all the same age on the inside. So when I'm with people who are in their 20s, I'm kind of vibing, you know, if, if they're not totally annoying and I don't want to kill them, you know, I can, I can just blossom with them in that moment and I can share, I can get stuff from them, which has always been the exchange between older people and younger people, the wisdom of age with the energy and idealism of youth. <clears throat> so we've lost this incredible warrior class of young people because young people are not idealistic. They're opportunistic. They're, um, no, but they're not naturally like that. They have been made into that. These are now all appropriate responses. It's appropriate to be out for yourself. It's appropriate to think that you are a great artist. Why? Because you exist, right? I mean, there's that actual mythology that people have bought in that, um, that artistry is something that's innate in everybody. Well, it's not. It's not. So by the time most people figure it out as they, this careerist thing, which has just grown and grown and grown since the early, I mean, I started experiencing careerism around me in the late 80s, but it really went full tilt, you know, um, in the 90s and then into the 2000s. Um, and and it, it destroyed even economic realities for artists because, you know, 
before you were a young artist, you came around. I mean, I went to the Poetry Project on New Year's Day between 1969 or something like that, maybe 70. The first time that I performed at the Poetry Project on New Year's Day was when I was probably 40 years old. You know, and then you see, and also it's about the length, because nobody cares about, not nobody, some people don't care about excellence. I mean, excellence is a value that has really fallen to the bottom. You know, other things are more important. Does it seem, you know, like, um, Um, it's, it's just curious because I say to a lot of younger people, younger artists, um, you have to make a distinction between how socially successful you are and how um, uh, artistically successful you are. Because in your 20s and 30s, it's easy to get people to come out if you're socializing. But then, you know, I remember every super cool club kid who lives in Peoria now, you know? I mean, there are people, they're here, they were well-known for like two or three years and they aged out, you know, they age out. And the thing was that you didn't used to age out down here, you know? You could be a glamorous 85-year-old and we, you know, Judith Molina, glamorous 88-year-old. Um, yeah, well, Quentin, yeah, I'm just trying to think of who's alive, you know. But I mean, <clears throat> I think fundamentally I'm interest. I'm a curious person. My, my highest um, personality trait is curiosity. So because I'm curious, I am always going to interact with whoever's around me. And maybe this is mumbo-jumbo, but I think that... Um, the level at which you vibrate is what you attract into your life, good and bad. And I attract a lot of amazing experiences, not all of them good, you know. But um, I think that's why I've been able to, I mean, I'm certainly the only person my age and of my artistic achievements who's still performing um, with 10 other people on a bill who are in their 20s. You know, and when I'm there, I don't feel like, oh, I'm this older, established artist. You know, I feel like, and that was kind of hard for me too in the past two years where I've had to finally face that for about 10 years, I thought that the, the queer downtown art scene that I socialize in was the continuation of the downtown art scene that I came into. And then I've had to realize that it's not. It's a tributary. There are some people who would have been in that original kind of just, you're an artist, you live downtown, and you have certain values, which include your political point of view, your social point of view, values, you know, values that you learned through people who were older than you because people called you on your shit, 
you know, people would critique you. They would have something to say about what you were saying, you know. And, and, and the more willing you were to reveal who you actually were, the more you would get your ass kicked and the smarter you'd get. So if we're living in a culture where young people don't want to be critiqued, you know, I mean, I'm always running into the, oh, Penny, we love you, because you always tell the truth. And they love it until I tell them the truth. <laughs> then all of a sudden it's, Penny's really mean. But you see, part of the thing is that this incredible middle-class um, uh, politesse has moved in to downtown, which didn't exist before. I mean, there were always some people, okay, who, you know, but there was more of a street energy. New York was, there was, you cannot separate criminality out of what was going on down here, you know? And that's a really important thing to be aware of, you know? So in the criminal world, nobody cares what race you are, nobody cares um, what your sexual orientation is, nobody cares where you went to school, nobody cares who your parents were, you know? And I've been saying that statement since 1985, because that's when I started to be really annoyed by where you went to school and who your parents are and, you know, all of that sort of thing. So, um, it, it, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I promise I'll wrap this up somehow, but I'm trying to say something really specific here. And, I mean, is it impossible to have that magic kingdom that once existed? I don't think it's impossible. But it's a question of people waking up, you know, and not feeling insulted. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, a, it's really strange, you know, that people are so easily offended. And offense is very much a middle-class idea. Because working-class people and underclass people, we don't get offended, we get mad. And that's the other thing, is that you can get mad, but it doesn't change the, the possibility of the relationship with the people. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I have a lot of, you know, my, my actual career was really truncated and actually stopped by a number of people who had the power to help me because they didn't like me because they thought I was not polite. You know, they didn't understand that I could call them on something, but it wasn't the end. Because in that world, it is the end. Well, thinking about this disappearing New York, I think like one thing I've been interested in, and I know it's something you've thought about in the past too, is that uh, the sort of rise of the institution in New York, particularly the museum. I mean, we went from the 80s when the museum was sort of in a ruins, in a kind of place that should be constantly critiqued, to a place where now it hosts all the best parties in New York in many ways. Not the best. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I think a lot, I, I actually, I, I will push against that actually, because I do think a lot of people go to museum parties, you know. Well, I mean, I think that a lot of, I mean, for example, uh, you know, the, the MoMA recently hosted a party that was, uh, that was hosted by Hood by Air, which is such a, 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 Hood by Air, which is a young fashion label that's really amazing and really doing incredible things right now. And so the, these museums have very consciously tried to hire popular 
underground promoters or underground artists or things and bring them into those institutions to attract and sort of gain credibility. So I'm interested in what you think about those particular institutions and how they have sought to so actively colonize spaces where like, like where PS1 is actively trying to replicate the experience of a Bushwick warehouse party or something, which only five years ago would have felt so strange in many ways. And I, I wonder how you, how you see these institutions and as they've sort of sought to appropriate careers, appropriate scenes, appropriate mentalities, and sort of incorporate them if you, and I, I know that's something you specifically encountered with, with someone like Jack Smith, you were so involved with his archive, and then that was sort of transferred over to an institution and sort of in many ways sanitized. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, the thing is that um, that happened in the past, you know, to a lesser, lesser degrees. I mean, I just hosted Semiotech's 40th anniversary, and there were like 40 artists on the bill, and not one artist got paid, you know? And, uh, you know, I got my little email, we're so happy that you have agreed to participate, and so wonderful that you are willing to forego any payment, you know? And then meanwhile, they're just throwing money at someone like Marina Abramovich or whoever else there, you know, dangling in front of the public. Yeah, it is a moment, yeah, it's a moment institution, absolutely. And I was kind of, I kept wondering why I didn't say anything about it, because I hosted, and I hosted for six hours, and I didn't say anything, and I kept questioning myself, because it would be the most typical thing would be Penny Arcade calls them out. And then I thought, why should I? Why should I call them out when nobody else is going to call them out and it's only going to fuck with me, you know? And I think I had to get to, to the point where I am now in Earth Years, 64, um, to be able to tell the difference between selling out, which to me selling out only means one thing. You go against your values. Now, I never get paid by those kind of institutions, whether it's creative time or, and I'm, and like many artists, I'm endlessly called upon to work for free. Endlessly. And I don't get the grants and um, haven't gotten the grants. I know Steve doesn't like me talking like this, but it's a real thing because it's, it has a lot to do with, with, with Right now, we're living once again, um, and these things go in cycles, but we're living very much in um, an upper-class world, you know? It's, a, it's over a hundred years since the secessionist movement in Vienna, which called for um, academia to no longer say who was an artist or what was art. So that spawned modern art, and we had all these decades and decades and decades, and now we're right back to academia being in charge and that class of people being in charge. So it can't be that everybody who works at every museum is horrible, just some of them, you know? Um, but also the thing is artists are not united in, an, in any kind of way because it's human nature. People think there's something, people get radicalized, when something happens to them. And sadly, 
you can't really get a coalition going on in that way. You know, um, when I go to the Met, you know, I usually give a quarter. I've been doing that since 1981, and I say, yep, I don't get invited to the galas, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, so here's my quarter, <laughs> you know. Um, and yet, you know, there was this year talk about trying to make the Met have the same kind of entry fee that MoMA has or, or the Whitney or whatever. And, um, Met could live off of the interest of its endowment every year and could certainly could pay all of its employees, maintain its collection, and still be free. But it still wants the it, it as an institution wants the right to charge. Well, one of the things I find really interesting is the way they the way the way everything's co-opted. So social practice. So the kind of performance that I do is social practice but I don't call it social practice. So then you have people kind of co-oping um, a kind of political, social ideals, and the whole museum world and the whole gallery structure, because there is a difference between the art world and the art market. They are not the same thing. I live in the art world, not in the art market. Yet, um, at a time when there are the kind of poverty that we're seeing on the street right now, the kind of homelessness that we're seeing on the street in 2014 makes the 80s look like it was a, um, you know, I don't know, like a, everybody was on a steamship liner or something, you know, enjoying a cruise, you know. I mean, there is horrible, hideous poverty on the streets people with running sores, they can't go to the hospital. I mean, all these um, nets, safety nets that we had in the past are gone. One would think that if these museums and these galleries and these artists are such activists and are so interested in social practice and political art, that they would be doing something that was directly addressing it, you know, and they're not because it's bullshit, it's crap, it's a lie. So what do you do about it? That's the question. You either get mad for many years, which is what I used to do, and then, you, you know, after, after you're mad for about 30 years, you're not so mad anymore. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's a very curious thing, because people come up to me and say, gee, Penny, you used to be so angry. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> You know, and they want me to be angry for them. They don't want to be angry. And yet, you know, all of us who are sitting here now, somewhere between the next eight and 10 years, we're gonna know the way it's played out. You know, regarding the horrible poverty, regarding the corruption in our government, the injustice that is in our country right now, on so many levels, and as you get older, you know, you, you lose some of the cotton batting that protects you when you're younger. When you're younger, you have, that's the only way I can describe it, is like there's a kind of cotton batting 
that kind of protects you, and as you get older, it wears down. And the real injustice of the world really gets to you in a way that you have no protection from it. And I don't know, I think because of the kind of life I was on the street a lot. Um, you know, I, I come from the street, I'm a street kid. Um, I already experienced a lot of sorrow and hardship and trauma before I was 20 years old. And very few people survive what I lived. And that helps me to be able to understand a little bit better certain things in my reactions to them. But I don't think any of us are really prepared for what it means that it really meant something that Bloomberg could overturn, overturn the term limits. That really meant something, and yet nothing happened, you know? And I think that all of these, um, the, um, the corruption that has been in the corporations, et cetera, has really trickled down to where people really feel like, you know, honor and truth and, you know, the excellence, like the more highly held virtues and values, fuck them, you know, they don't, I mean, you have to be a really principled person to care more about the truth than getting ahead. And, you know, that's an inclination, that's a personal inclination that people have, you know. Um, you're not going to get any points for it. Just thinking about um, that, sort of the cotton banding disappearing, I mean, I, I, I'm curious to know, you know, I think all of us here and across the country were really still struggling to understand Ferguson and things like that are really weighing on things. And, and I mean, these injustices have existed for a long time and they've existed in multiple ways, you know, and there have been many times recently that people have tried to articulate a response from Occupy Wall Street to the current protest now. And I wonder if, how you see yourself fitting into that, but also how you see art fitting into this particular moment where I think a lot of people are just so disheartened by Ferguson, so defeated by that experience. Well, I don't know if they feel defeated or, yeah, Burroughs said, um, let's see, um, I can't remember how he put it. Well, anyways, the, the second part of it I know for sure. He said, a psychotic is somebody who finally figured out what's going on, <laughs> right? So, you know, we can talk about Ferguson, but look at what happened after Sandy. All those people in the Rockaways who had no electricity, who had no, everything was wet, and that went on for months. I mean, we saw, like on the Lower East Side, when they tore down 172 Stanton Street in, 19, in January of 1998, making like, I don't know how many people it was, 35 people homeless, when if those facing bricks would have fallen off of a Park Avenue building, those people would have been put up in hotels. I mean, I think when you live downtown or, you know, in the ghetto, you know, um, you, you know, 
we've continually seen this kind of injustice take place. Um, I'll tell you, I'm like at a point where um, I just don't believe there's any justice in this country at all, on any level. I don't see it. I don't see it on any level. I know what we went through during the beginning years of the AIDS epidemic, where I actually heard the, um, the New York um, public health official, his name was Dr. Joseph at the time, actually said on the radio, anybody who uses um, hyperderm, you know, anybody who uses illegal drugs deserves to die. I mean, he said that. And I remember standing there going, shit, like, I have like an eighth grade education, and even I know that that's not a good way to approach public health. Yeah, because my experience was very um, practical, because I lived on Stanton and Clinton, and on Houston Street, the junkie whores were plying their trade, and all those Datsuns and Nissans that were stopping to pick up those girls were of very, very average middle-class men who were bringing illnesses back to their families. So I remember thinking, how weird can it be like this? I'm smarter than this guy, you know? But um, to me, like, you know, in Longing Last Longer, which we've just been working on uh, at Joe's Pub, Steve and I spent a month at the McDowell Colony, my first um, uh, artistic retreat that I've ever done. It was a fantastic experience because the McDowell Colony is actually based on real altruism for artists. And so I had no argument there. Like I went somewhere, it was an institution, and I didn't need to fight with anybody. It was amazing, it was so relaxing. <laughs> Um, we were working really hard to try to forge um, political material into the show in a form that's entertaining and that can be received. I mean, I learn everything that I learn, I either learn from reading, but more often from someone speaking to me. And what I try to provide in my work, my work is very journalistic. There's a, that, that has always been true. Of course, there isn't any critic who's been clever enough to say it, but you know, we're just waiting for them to come out and like really start to get what the work's about. But there is a journalistic element where I find out stuff I want to share it with people. I don't believe that you can change the world. The world has always been a hideous place with you know, horrible values running rampant. But I believe you can change the world around you, and that is what we try to do in our work. It's what I've always done in my work, is try to get as many like-minded people around me so that I can have the kind of utopian life around myself that I want, that I believe that we deserve and I don't want to have it, you know, I'm an anarchist, I don't want to have it in the by, sweet by and by. I want to have it now. At the same time, I'm just shocked at how difficult it is 
to get more and more people on the same page. Just now when we had these um, uh, demonstrations in New York against Ferguson, I was like, okay, how do we corral that energy to get those people to show up for other things? Because believe me, we are losing our housing rights like crazy now. How do you get 100,000 people to show up at the mayor's door saying hands off rent stabilization or you know living wage living rent a living rent you know i mean i just watched this documentary that said that it was the new banksy the banksy in new york which is a fantastic documentary they had people in willets point these el salvadorian family i think they're living in a basement in Willits Point, Brooklyn, paying $1,400 a month. So, you know, if you think the density of, of the rent is only in Manhattan and Brooklyn and in the closer boroughs, no, it's everywhere. But once again, you know, the other element, like, you know, this whole thing with, um, Taylor Swift being named cultural ambassador, which of course is a complete joke, right? I mean, for thinking people, it's absurd. But it's right in keeping with the kind of, of um, you know, corporate capitalism that's going on. And everybody's attacking, myself included, um, Taylor Swift. I think she's a dumb little fuck. But nobody has yet said, who appointed her? You know, who appointed her? That's the issue, that she took the, the, the job is no surprise, you know, but who appointed her? Did they listen to that horrible song about New York that, you know, where New York is a great place to get a cup of coffee? Clearly, she has mixed up New York with Seattle, right? Totally confused. And, 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 and to me, this is absolutely commensurate, absolutely equal with their being able to sell the um, uh, St. Vincent's Hospital for high-end uh, luxury tower. No, that is a public building. That means that belongs to us. That belongs to the citizens of New York. No, you can't just do anything you want, but we have, we have been, it's actually been eroded in us, you know, any kind of civic responsibility. Fran Leibowitz said it best, when did Americans agree to be called consumers instead of citizens? But there is this point, you know, like in, in the 90s, in the early 90s, when I was doing Bitch Dyke Fag Hag Whore, which was my sex and censorship show, People kept calling me radical, and I kept saying, I'm not radical. All I want is what I was promised in my fifth grade civics class. <laughs> you know, really kind of fundamental democracy, which now, <laughs> if you even, you know, bring up something like that, you're considered to be like, you know, some far left commie lunatic. But I am an anarchist. So, um, I don't know, I don't know where, 
you know, for me, it's, I'm very selfish. It's about the kind of world I want to live in. It's about who I want around me, you know. I'm 64, and I've spent the past, pretty much since 2006, I mean, it can go back to 1990, but we'll just say 2006, really putting myself out there with younger people and, you know, going into the furnace all the time and, you know, having the, you know, witch hunts on Facebook, etc., for telling my personal truth, you know. Um, and I'm kind of <clears throat> phasing out of that, you know. I mean, I'm still going to do what I do in my work, but I feel less and less inclined, I think because I've realized that the real problem is stupidity. Now, there are a lot of stupid people in the world. It's not helpful when you're really smart. I happen to be a really, really smart person. And I'm a critical person, and I'm an investigative person. These are qualities that are natural to me. And I feel like, I mean, I keep telling people, my public years are done. And I don't mean as a performer, but I mean as being, you know, the canary in the coal mine. Because I don't see it as, as being helpful. I have a lot of friends who are in their 20s, good friends, who are smart. And I have friends in every age group who are smart. And it behooves younger people to try to be as smart as possible because you're the ones who are going to be living under really dire circumstances, not me, because I'm going to die sooner than you, you know? And that's where, you know, I mean, you know, this whole idea of like, you know, this kind of like art star trip that people think is out there, all you've got to do is the simple math. Just figure out how many people have become real art stars in the past 20 years. And you're gonna see that it's five or six. Like, probably it's not gonna happen to you. Do you have another plan? You know? You know what I mean? And also the truth is, I mean, we're gonna talk about Jack Smith and we haven't, but nobody was interested in Jack Smith when he died. As a matter of fact, people who are now exhibiting their Jack Smith artifacts were people who I couldn't get to agree to save his apartment. You know, I hear that the Uzi Parnez or somebody, um, is it just Uzi or is it, um, huh? Uzi and Carmelita. No, not Carmelita, Ella. Ella Troiano. Um, oh, all three of them, okay. So at any rate, I mean, when Jack died, I said I wanted to save Jack's apartment as a museum. And Ella Triano, perhaps distraught with grief, said, what's the point, Penny? Jack's dead. And I thought, mm, wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but when I called up the NEA and tried to get money to store Jack's work, the guy told me, no, we had a lot of problems with Jack Smith. And I said, yes, I understand Jack was a very difficult person, but um, he's dead, and he's left this incredible body of work. And the guy said, I still have a bad taste in my mouth from dealing with Jack Smith. 
And I said, yeah, Jack was really difficult and, you know, hard to deal with. I said, but you see, the beauty of it is that Jack is dead. <laughs> and he's left all this work. And the guy still wouldn't give me a penny, not a penny, okay? And um, to be perfectly honest, when I formed the archive, um, there were a lot of people who have now forgotten how brutally they treated me and how they slandered me, who could not understand at all why I wanted to keep all of Jack's work together. Their only interpretation was that I was stealing it for myself. And no, no matter how many times you said to people, if I was stealing it, why would I make a not-for-profit archive? But you can't talk to these people. Why? Because they're stupid. <laughs> I would encourage all of you to make an assessment of how bright the person you're dealing with is. See, because I created a lot of unnecessary hatred towards myself because I would try to talk to people always on the same level. Not only would I talk to them on this particular level that I want to live on, I would demand that they interact with me at this level. People who are stupid don't like that because thinking hurts, okay? Thinking is a very difficult thing to do. The brain is only a mapping system, our brain. The brain doesn't think. The, the brain puts like-minded things together. The mind, right? Where, which seems to be the overview that does the thinking then demands that a new idea, the brain can only recognize what it already knows. It will not recognize something it has not experienced. You have to actually make a new inroad into the surface of the brain that is deeper than what you knew before. How many people want to do that? Not many. I don't even want to do it, okay? So, um, I mean, it is World AIDS Day, we're thinking about Jack Smith today, and I just want to say that the truth of the matter is, people are only interested in artists when they're dead. You know? I'm going to be huge when I die. Because there's so much video, and I was so pretty, and I said so many fun things. You know? But it's a real, there's a real issue involved here. I mean, you have someone like Colette Lumiere, who's one of the most original and greatest artists. She's been copied by everybody, you know, for, for decades. She can't get arrested, right? Where's her retrospective at MoMA, at the Whitney? Come on. So, you know, when you see that, you have to at least be, even if you can't act, right? Because not everybody, I don't act all the time. You know, I see things that are wrong and I don't act on it all the time. But you at least have to, you know, do the math. Like now everybody's interested in Jack Smith because they can control Jack, you know? And it's always the same story. It's always the people who couldn't control the artist when, they, when the artist was alive, 
And some of the people that I see, you know, you know, kind of making their name on Jack Smith, they would have lasted 23 seconds in a room with Jack Smith. They would have not been able to have tolerated Jack. I got the most that could be gotten out of knowing Jack Smith because I didn't fault him for his bad behavior. I was able to contain a conflict because whenever I was in his presence, I would, he would open my mind in such a remarkable way. And, and, and Jack was just one of those people. I, had, I must have had at least 50 people in my life like that over the past 50 years. So um, we're here on World AIDS Day. AIDS isn't over. AIDS isn't over. I got like creamed in the Guardian by some idiot who wrote this review of Bitch Dyke Fag Hag Whore two years ago. I just read the review again the other day, Steve. So just so you don't think that I just carry these bad feelings constantly. Um, I just happened to read it the other day because someone had brought uh, a memory up from that period. And the guy said that I was representing gay men and AIDS the way it was like 25 years ago. And that, you know, AIDS was over, you know. And it was a remarkable experience to have because we had AIDS researchers who were coming to the shows weeping, saying, you're able to say in 15 minutes what we've been trying to get people to hear for three years. But what, is that, what does it boil down to? That the world's a horrible place, filled with horrible people, that we're still here, we have to be in the world, and I think being quite strict, I mean, I'm now at a point where I don't tell people when I don't like them. You know, what's the point? They're not smart enough to understand why I don't like them. And I'm also a very kind person. I don't really want to hurt their feelings, you know? But I am trying to switch over to putting my energy into proactive people. You know, people who I don't have to drag them, you know, to a, a higher life form, you know? <laughs> On that, maybe using these talks, we open it up to the audience. So if anyone has any questions, um, now's the moment to pick the mind over the brain. Do we have any? Not too much a question, but I think my interest is And uh, to sit here today and listen to her speak, it's been a pleasure. I mean, going on that, I mean, one thing that I, I've really loved about you and your work for a really long time is that you've been able to build affiliations, and I've talked about this already, we both talked about this, but across, across, you know, sort of generations and across scenes, and, you know, one thing that I, I've encountered a lot is among my friends is they've encountered you even in brief, and you've been such an amazing, generous person, and you, you know, when they've performed alongside you or something like that or been in a show, you have you have you just bring this energy to things and so I'm, I'm wondering what sort of 
there aren't, I mean, I'm a, I'm a young person. I'm wondering what your advice is then to sort of younger people today. I mean, you've talked a lot about your perspective, but. Well, for one thing, what you just described is not how I am publicly perceived. I'm perceived as being a bitch. I'm perceived as being really mean, selfish. I mean, we could go on, I mean, you know, to go on and on. I mean, I'm not, it, and this has been going on for a few decades, you know, so I know it and I, you know, I'm always kind of like stunned by it because I know that I am generous by nature and you can't change your nature. That's something that's sort of instinctively you. So um, I am generous by nature and I'm also practical and pragmatic. If, my, if, I'm, um, if I'm the MC of something, it would be just too tacky for me to use that time to ingratiate myself with the audience. I would be humiliated by doing that. The way I would respect myself would be to try to be a bridge for the, uh, for the artists that I'm presenting to the audience and then I would feel very good about myself and I always feel very good about myself. And I've also encountered like when I'm hosting Pussy Faggot, we're doing one, I think it's December 14th by the way, when I'm hosting Pussy Faggot and I'll go after these younger kids and I'll say, um, is there anything you want me to promote? Uh, are, you, you know, are, are you doing something soon? And they'll be really kind of combative with me because they don't even understand what I'm asking them. And then when they see me do it and see me remember their name, remember where they're performing, or ask them if I don't remember it and go out of my way to do that, then all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, you're an angel. But somehow, none of this seems to leak into the greater perception about myself. Maybe that's changing. But for younger artists, I mean, what I would say is, if you have to live somewhere where you have to work three jobs, plus um, manipulate your grandmother, <laughs> you know, and humiliate your father or mother into having enough money to live in New York in order to pay your rent. And I know that, this, that there's different levels of this because, you know, my mom died 10 years ago, so I'm that generation that inherited, and my mom was a sweatshop worker, so my mom was, you know, <laughs> decidedly working class. But even my mother managed to save $50,000 per kid, okay? So anybody who is from a middle class or upper middle class or higher background who's my age and is inheriting from those people who saved money that very archaic way of behaving those people have inherited a lot more money than I have. And they have, their it's not even their children, it's their, their children and their grandchildren who they are supporting in this kind of idealized style. Because they also believe that these kids 
are going to make it just any time now, you know. And the thing is, there's no making it. That making it that people believe is going to happen does not exist. It exists for a very, very, very small margin of people. So if Joni and I were just talking about this the other day as we were smoking a joint and relaxing, having gotten out of bed around 2 or 3 in the afternoon, and enjoying one of our usual kind of tete-a-tetes that we have when we go out of the house for... I don't go out of the house, but Joni comes to me. And Joni said, these people have to have a plan. You have to have a plan about what kind... What do you want your life to look like? What's important to you? Real artists, no matter what metier they follow, need time. They don't need money. Any artist I know would trade money for time anytime. I need a lot of time. I need most of the day to drink coffee and smoke cigarettes. And it does eventually lead to some kind of work. You know, I mean, then you need to decide where you can live, you know? Like, you could work for six months and then you could go to, um, ah, uh, indeed, indeed. Don't worry, it was videoed, you can watch it, you'll like it. It's very working class. Um, Eileen Miles, the great poet Eileen Miles. Um, oh, Eileen, you'll like this. So he was just um, asking me like, what my advice to younger artists is. And I was saying that most artists prefer time to money. Like, time is a very important thing. Art cannot be rushed. Penny Arcade axiom number one. While art can be product, product cannot be art. I have a shitload of work that I could make into all kinds of products. Not that that's going to happen, but I could if I wanted to. Um, you need to decide, one needs to decide. We were all in New York because it was cheap. That was the number one reason we were in New York. And because there was a density of people who were like us, you know? So even if you weren't, you know, fundamentally, downtown New York was populated by loners. And all we wanted was for no one to like lean on us, you know? Nobody cared what somebody else's opinions were because you didn't care what their opinions were. Who cares, who gives a shit, you know? Um, you know, you could work for six months and you could go and live in Thailand for six months until it got too hot, you know? I have friends uh, that I met in Bangkok, Americans, New Yorkers, mostly painters, who are living in Bangkok because they can get an entire building for $600 a month. And they have all kinds of stuff going on there. And they can also take the heat. Oh well, don't like humidity? That's not gonna work out for you, you know? Or go to Detroit, you know? You know, go somewhere where, yeah, find out what you're made of. I mean, that's the problem. Because, you know, you, 
you, you, can't, you can't witness your own becoming. Your, your becoming happens with you unaware of it. And yet we're living in a culture where young people think that they're going to experience their breakout into genius, you know? And it doesn't really work that way. It's like, it's a long, slow, Jack Smith said, you have to be willing to be bad for 20 years in order to be great. And then there's no guarantee, <laughs> you know? But what we're really talking about here, Andrew, is a completely different way of perceiving being alive. And the fact that being an artist no longer means the same thing that it meant 25 years ago. Because people were artists with absolutely no expectation of ever getting anything out of it except artistic success. And they weren't even sure that they would get that, but for whatever reason, they were compelled. Bobby Beers, who's also died of AIDS, um, said in our interview with him, he said, I'm the artist human. We've always existed. For absolutely no reason, we write about it, dance about it, paint about it, perform about it, make music about it. He said, I don't care if anybody is interested in my writing or in my painting. I don't care. That's a very powerful position to be in, to not care. You know, and I can say that while even in my 30s I cared very much, I wanted recognition for my work. Um, at the same time, it depended on who it was. Because if I don't respect somebody's, if I don't respect somebody, then I don't respect their opinion. And that becomes just kind of categoric. It's just from here to day 99, I don't care what that particular person thinks, you know. But I mean, let's ask you, I mean, you know, is it hard for you to live in New York? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think... I think everyone struggles now. I mean, it's very expensive. I mean, we talked about rent. We talked about, you know, the cheap places in neighborhoods go away really fast. You know, even when I live in Bushwick, which when I first lived there three years ago, it was really cheap. It cost nothing to live there, and there was really cheap bodegas that you could eat at. But now in my my part of the the neighborhood, it's extremely expensive. You know, like the Clintons dined at a restaurant in my neighborhood. So that's the kind of situation, I mean, that is rapid, that, that kind of. Well, what we really need is we need, you know, like a whole coalition of young people to make it seriously uncool to eat in a restaurant with tablecloths, you know, or to eat in a restaurant where an entree costs more than, than $12. I mean, my neighborhood is full of restaurants. They are filled with people who are under 35 years old. And I look at these people, I look in the windows all the time, I'm like, Heidi. <laughs> and I look at these people and I think, I ate pizza, falafel, and cheap diner food till I was 50 years old. Like, what do you do for an encore if you're eating I mean, young people know about wines. Really? 
Really? You know, young people should know about sex and, you know, friendship and music and, you know, people in their 20s. I mean, it's so sad because they are creating, it is being created a, a world of automatons who are moving on to their place in the, um, what is this thing called? Um, come on. Conveyor belt, yeah. There's another word I use, but I can't remember it. You know, they're just, I mean, it's so, it's so sad because your 20s are the only time in your life when you will have the most freedom to experiment with how you live. And somewhat into your 30s if you, you know, don't have that biological compelling biological thing to procreate, you know what I mean? Um, but you, you know, life closes in on you anyways, you know? I don't know if it's closed in on me, I can't remember, but I don't leave the house, so I can't tell, you know? But I'm very excited because I still live exactly the same way I lived when I was 20. But I don't mind being poor, you know? I mean. Also, I'm a criminal, so that makes it a little different, too, because I can, like, kind of do this, you know. I don't really have a lot of respect for a lot of societal mores, but um, I just feel that the f number one thing is to be brave enough to just find out who you are without, like, see, the whole thing with the emerging arts is it's such bullshit. It's like, um, before there were young artists who became old artists. Never before in the history of art did there have to be, like, a special, like, hothouse environment for young poets, young painters, young performance artists, this special, because they're so vulnerable and weak and they really need, because they won't last, you know? I mean, that's pathetic. That is pathetic. And there, you know, look, I'm somebody who very, very, very badly wanted to be a generative artist. I was always a great performer. Even when I was 18 years old, I was really, really good because I was inherently super high energy, and I listened and understood what people were telling me to do, and I was cooperative. But that said, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Wait, what was I saying? Generative artist. Oh, generally, I wanted to be a generative artist, meaning I wanted to write, you know? I wanted to be able to make my own work, and even though I always wrote, I was highly embarrassed by it. Plus, beside that, you know, I had been, I was very close to Patti Smith in the late 60s, so I couldn't be a poet because Patti was a poet, and I didn't want anybody to think I was copying Patti. And I had that, like, about music, and I had it about so many different things. Oh, I can't do that, because, oh, no, I can't do that, or I can't do that. Not only because they did it, but because I was afraid that I would be influenced by their voice 
you know, which Patty had an extremely distinct, I mean, her most distinctive period was, you know, before 1975, you know, speaking from my humble opinion. But um, I suffered with that, with a strangulation of not being able to express, knowing I had something to express and not knowing how to do it. And then eventually it happened, but not without a lot of pain. There's definitely, I would say, about 10 years of real pain involved. But my recommendation is to jump, you know, like go somewhere where you're left to yourself and find out, you know? Because, I mean, being an artist isn't all that. I mean, it's kind of pathetic that, it's sad that, that so many people want to be artists now, you know? Um, it's become an identity, you know? It's not just what a particular group of people do. There's something about being able to say, for some reason, that I'm an artist makes people feel superior to other people. And it seems to be just the way they feel superior to having an iPhone 6. I have an iPhone 4, but they have an iPhone 6 and they feel superior. And then they tell you they're an artist and you ask them what they do and they say a lot of things. You know? I don't know, I don't know where it's gonna go, but I, 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 I do know that I was highly guided in the kind of artist that I would become by being exposed to older people who gave me a set of standards. So I knew, you know, until I could be as good as John Giorno, I wasn't going to call myself a poet. And until I could be as good as John Vaccaro, I wasn't going to call myself a director. And the same thing with acting and other things that I do. But, um, you know, some people ha have take pleasure in striving and other people don't, you know. I mean, while it was painful, there was also something really edifying for me in going forward. And I think that that's why I get to be 64 and be like this and be still and I feel even more now, I feel like I'm at the beginning. I don't feel like I'm at the end of something. I feel I'm at the beginning because, you know, there's so many things that I never learned. I was so busy fucking and, <laughs> you know, doing all that other kind of live stuff. I didn't read all those books that I can read now. Didn't have the time. <laughs> But see, that's what's really wonderful, isn't it? Because reading is free. Well, until they close all the libraries and pull the plug. On that note, do we have any more questions from the audience? Oh, I, okay. I, making a lot of money, you should stop thinking about home as a place where you live. 
you should just have a bed, and like like ten people should live in an apartment, and you should pay two or three hundred dollars a month and not work. I love know? it. And like kind of reclaim and figure out where workspace is someplace else, but not in your apartment. But, so that, but that wouldn't have worked out too well for you. What's that? Do you think that would have that you would have been able to do that? Would you be able well, to? Well, I can't. You know, I can't reverse. I know. I know. You know. I can't be. Yeah. 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 Or even some of us do get older and we do like our friends. But yeah, I mean, um, I, I will say this: that I'm only saying to all my friends here in New York that, um, you know, I always think about because I'm I'm very communal as long as I have private space for myself. Like I don't mind having, I always have people in my house. I don't mind having people in my house as long as I can get away and be alone. But I also say to my close friends, hey, you know, eventually like, we could just keep like a couple of apartments in New York and have other places and, you know, and this is my intention is to have like kind of roving reality. You know, but that's not so helpful for somebody who's young who's just starting out. You know, I think you just need to. You see, there's. This is the best way I know how to put it. I was in Los Angeles, and this girl came up to me. She said, "Oh my God, you're from New York. I wish I lived in New York. There's so much going on in New York. There's nothing going on in L.A." And I said, yeah, I said, everybody knows there's nothing going on in L.A. I said, but there's nothing going on in New York, but nobody knows it. So there's this fantasy that there's all this stuff going on in New York. Guess what? It's not. You know that fabulous designer you talked about? Yeah. They're okay. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of fabulous designers everywhere. You know, it's when the spectacle puts its light, you know, and, and is really, you know, every time you feel that kind of sense that there's something really going on, like when, um, when Performa did that thing, Rosalie Goldberg did that thing with Jay-Z, where they called Jay-Z singing his song Picasso eight times in a row, endurance art. I mean, how pathetic was that, okay? And then they, only some people got invited to it, and then people were sad that they, that they weren't invited. I mean, they were, they were, people I know were sad. And I was like, did you see the video? I mean, did you see Marina Abramovich going like this? <laughs> And Rosalie Goldberg. I mean, it's like when P. Diddy has his parties, you know, out in Long Island and everybody, all the newspapers are filled. P. Diddy's black and white party with all these people, you know, like Jessica Simpson and Donald Trump. It was the party of the year. I'm like, what a fucking bore, are you kidding me? You know, it's boring, you know? So you have to see that you're being hypnotized. We're all being hypnotized all the time. And how do you cut it? How do you cut it? 
because we're all affected, you know? You're affected more because you're younger and you have less experience. You know, but I always say that I have more options because I'm older. So I have more experience that gives me more options. But when it comes to acting on the option, I'm in exactly the same place you are if I'm really being honest to freely act on the option without trying to cover my ass or look like I know what I'm doing or, do you, you know what I mean? It's like, that's a real struggle to, to stay in that, that zone, you know? And, you know, you came to my house. I didn't know if I was gonna like you. I thought you were gonna be one more horrible person coming to my house, right? You remember, and, um, and I liked you. We had a great conversation. We're having a good conversation now, and you're always welcome, as is anybody, always welcome to write to me, to ask me if you need help, because that seems to be a role that I have, and, and I accept it, and I like it, and I'm privileged to help people, and also I didn't get much help, so I, I really understand how a little bit of help can be really useful, you know? So, anyways, I love you, Andrew. You're good. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Have a good night. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.